You'll notice in the bulletin there's an, there's an additional sermon outline, so it kind of shows you where we're going. There's four points. But then also there is a, uh, an outline of the passage, and you'll actually see parallels A, A, B, B, C, C, and then D, D. But really, um, it, what it shows you is that there is, um, it goes, starts on the outside and works its way in. And so I just put that there for you, if it's helpful, if you're a visual person, to see as we read this passage, which will seem very strange to us and unusual, that there is a purpose going on here. God has a purpose. Well, before we read, we have a rule with our kids. The rule is that there are certain things that you don't talk about at the table. Right? Bathroom talk, bodily functions, where they all have their proper place, their proper time. Our rule is bathroom talk in the bathrooms. Our, our kids seem to be very obsessed with flatulence right now, but it's, it's not for the table. That's a little bit like our passage today. Now, this definitely would not pass muster for bartender table talk. And yet, God has made all of your body, and it is good. And there is a place to talk about your body, including in God's word and in this sermon. And so the idea here is that you are to glorify God with the body that he gave you. You are to glorify God with the body that he gave you. Now let's, let us read, we'll read all of Leviticus chapter 15. This is God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. This is the law of his uncleanness for a discharge, whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blocked up by his discharge. It is, the, it is his uncleanness. Every bed on which the one with the discharge lies shall be unclean, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. And whoever sits on anything on which the one with the discharge has sat shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. And whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. And if the one with the discharge sits on something who is on someone who is clean, he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And any saddle on which the one with the discharge rides shall be unclean. And whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean. Who carries such things shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Anyone whom the one with the discharge touches without leaving his rinsed hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And an earthenware vessel that the one with the discharge touches shall be broken, and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. And the one with the discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days from his cleansing and wash his clothes, and he shall bathe his body in fresh water and shall be clean. And on the eighth day... He shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and come before the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting and give them to his priests. And the priest shall use them, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord for his discharge. If a man has an omission of semen, he shall bathe his body in water and be unclean until the evening. And every garment and every skin on which the semen comes shall be washed with water and be unclean until the evening. If a man lies with a woman and has an omission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for several, seven days 
and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean, and whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed of anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed in which he lies shall be unclean. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take two turtle doves, or two pigeons, and bring them to the priests, to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering, and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they defile in their uncleanness, they defile in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in my midst. This is the law for him who has a discharge and for him who has an emission of semen becoming unclean thereby. Also for her who is unwell with her menstrual impurity, that is, for anyone, male or female, who has a discharge, and for the man who lies with a woman who is unclean. This is God's word. Reminds me, D.A. Carson told a story about how he was a grad student in England and he had married his wife and his mother was a nominalist. She was nominal Anglican, you know, very polite. And um, he was going to an evangelical church. 60-minute expository sermons just happened to be in Hosea. Right, right in the midst of Hosea. And the, the preacher did not hold back. And afterwards, his mother-in-law came out and said, that, uh, that Hosea bit, is it in the Anglican Bible? Yes. This is God's word. Now, now, what is this passage saying? Well, first thing is that God talks about your body. And so, so should you. Now, um, it is saying, now, this is similar to last week's sermon in the evening. If you want more in depth, you can go and listen to that. But it does say that certain bodily fluids make you ceremonially unclean. And, and what you see here is it moves from the beginning and the end and kind of works its way to the center. I, I actually like it, would like it better if verse 18 was a separate paragraph because I think that's, that's set off. Um, and so on, on the outside, it's talking about when a man or a woman's reproductive system is not working. And so this is abnormal and it's unclean until it's resolved and it requires a sacrifice. Right? You, you should be familiar with this because you heard this about this in Mark 5 last week from Pastor Peter about the woman who came up and touched Jesus. So that's kind of the beginning and the end of the chapter. And then, and then moving into the next would be, well, the normal reproductive functions. So everyday male, male and female reproductive functions. And these two make you unclean, but, but it's less significant. You don't need to wait seven days or have a sacrifice. You simply wash and the next day you're clean. 
Now, it probably brings up the obvious question, why does a woman have to wait seven days? We covered that a little bit in last week's sermon. Um, All I'll say here is this is not saying that women are are less valuable. Uh, I would say that, in in fact, in a time and place where it was expected, this was even probably a protection for women. We could talk more about that if if you're curious about that. But so you have abnormal functions, normal functions, and then in the very middle, verse 18, consummation in sexual intercourse. And, and the implication here, especially with chapter 12, is that the normal goal for human sexuality is fulfillment in marriage between a man and a woman that produces children. Now, just to, to note here, this uncleanness is different from, say, the infectious skin diseases where you were, you were sent outside the camp, right? Now, here you're unclean, and anyone that touches you is unclean, but, but you may stay in the camp. So in this way, it's less severe, but perhaps more widespread. So why were these laws given? Um, Again, like last week, there's just a lot that we don't know. Some of it may have had to do with physical physical hygiene and cleanliness. But but there's also certainly a heightened awareness of human sexuality. The Bible treats sexuality with respect and reverence. And remember, in the Mosaic Covenant, the ceremonial laws governed every aspect of life. It's not surprising that there would be laws for this area as well. Now, now, these laws are fulfilled in Christ. They don't apply directly to us. But the scriptures still speak to us. And here's the first application. You should not feel ashamed by simply talking about your bodies. Right? God talks about your bodies, and you should not blush in silence. Don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but I think that as a church, we have not done a great job over the last, say, 200 years about presenting a positive vision for human sexuality as God has created it. it. The church may have even contributed to a culture of shame by, being, shame by being silent on these areas. And when we are quiet, society has gladly stepped in and taken the ball and run with it, and it's not pretty. But we should be talking about God's design for sexuality. But after all, in the world, it's everywhere. You know, I don't care. You might say, well, <laughs> I don't want to talk to my kids about this right now. And there's, of course, gradated levels and the time and the place, but I don't care if you keep your kids home. It is everywhere. I don't care if you, you monitor what your kids watch on screens or don't let them watch anything at all. It's everywhere. We go to the Franklin, um, the Franklinville Library. It's a wonderful little library. We, we, we don't have one in Pole Tavern, so we chose that one. And we went, and the kids come home loaded up with maybe a dozen books every week, and it's great treasure time. And, and so, so they, Rachel got a Cinderella book, and it's a modern retelling of the Cinderella story. So, of course, the fairy godmother is inept, right, because she's the, she's the elder, she's, she's the, the wise. No, she's not. She's, 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 she's clumsy, she's a buffoon, but uh, Cinderella does go to the ball, and she leaves her, her glass slipper, and then when the prince comes looking for her, she says, you know what? Not interested. She hides. The prince never finds her. And then she marries the farmer next door, except in the picture, the farmer's a woman. And the end time tagline is, now that's a fairy tale ending. You're not getting away with this. You're not going to be able to hide from this. And I'll tell you what, now this is a blot in our society that we're introducing these ideas as good to our children. But parents, I'll tell you, you should not hyperventilate when, you're, when your child sees that story. Now, if you're wise, you'll limit the exposure but this is a teaching opportunity. So, you know, say to Sam, you know, Sam, there are some people that, that believe that men can marry men and women can marry women. But is that true? And Sam will say, no, no, God, God has made men to marry women and women to marry men. So that's right, Sam. And, and we love those people, but understand they're disobeying God, that they are sinning and, and they're wrong. 
Now, we have been too bashful. We have seeded the ground. Now, uh, parents and kids, I'm, I am just going to give you a, just give you a little um, a, a line of questioning or talk. You can talk about, you know, during the sermon, on the way home, the kids are asking about things. I am going to use the words like sex and sexual intimacy. What does Pastor Andrew mean when he talks about those things? Well, of course, sex can simply mean boy or girl. Um, we often use the word gender, but that has so much baggage. I do prefer the words, the older word sex. But in this sermon throughout, sex and sexual intimacy talks about that special physical relationship that God has given to a married couple. Right? It's, it's joyful, it's sacrificial, it's mutually self-giving, and it should be producing new life un, under normal circumstances. Well, God talks about our bodies, so, so should we. So, so how do we do that? Are, are, we, are we just crass and anything goes like it is today? You just throw it out there? It doesn't matter how you say, what you say, just whatever you want? You know, we're animals, like, act like that? The way often our society talks about it reminds me of Proverbs 30.20. It says this, This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth. Says, I've done nothing wrong. You know, just scratching an itch. Just a bodily function. I can talk about it like I want. Now, post-fall, after Adam and Eve have sinned, our bodies are good, but, but we do understand that our sinful natures can trip us up, and we should be concerned with propriety and modesty. Those are some old words, aren't they? Propriety and modesty. Um, propriety, I, I, I looked it up because I, I would take it to be what is proper, but it really means according to society's conventions. But there is no propriety today. So when I say propriety, I mean according to the way that God has made things, according to his design. Listen to what um, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 as he's talking about the body of Christ and he's using an analogy of the human body. In verse 22 he says, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. So clearly, Paul is talking about there's a propriety and modesty that the, the Bible gives us. Not anything goes. And, and I understand that this is not a sermon on modesty. And I understand there's, there's a lot of mixed messages going out there. Right? In the world, it just says modesty is oppressive. You know, there's no modesty. We're constantly pushing the boundaries and sexualizing clothing and everyday activities and kids younger and younger. And, and the church, sometimes well-intentioned, might say, well, you know, your body is dangerous and shameful. And so you must hide it. I've talked to young women who have felt that way. Like, there's something wrong with my body. Well, no, no. There's an appropriate place for us to be modest in public, and there's, there's, a pro, there's places for other things. But we should be, seek to be modest, not out of shame as if there's something inherently wrong, but knowing that God has made us this way and out of love for others. Similarly, Paul says in Ephesians 5, he says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. As God's people, we should treat sexuality with respect. Now, probably all of you growing up have been subject to the junior high locker room jokes, right? Or the, or the drinking limericks or whatever. But that, that is out of place for Christians where we're just using uh, sexual functions and for, for crass laughs. Because God dignifies the body. And we should be comfortable while still realizing there's a right place and the right time. I'll say one of the reasons why we need to talk about this, um, Justin and Lindsay Holcomb, who have run some helpful books on protecting kids against um, child abuse in the church, say kids who are comfortable speaking about their bodies 
are better protected against sexual abuse because they can recognize when something's wrong and they have the vocabulary to say to someone that they, tr- they trust, this isn't right. Perhaps, perhaps one of the reasons the church in the past has do- not done well with the evil of sexual abuse is because we don't have good vocabulary. We cannot see this ground to the world. Right? God talks about our bodies, so should we. You also see that men and women's bodies are different, but equally good. Now, as you, as you look at this chapter, I want you to notice that there's an equality here. There's, a, there's obvious differences, but inequality. Right now, this will once again bring up the question from last week's sermon, is, is scripture misogynistic? Does it dishonor women? You can go back to last week's sermon about there. And, and today, when any difference is often equated as oppression or inequality, you can understand why people might think that. But what I want you to see here is that men and women are mentioned equally here. There's, there is a balance and symmetry in this passage that reminds us that, that men and women you get equal time. Their bodies are equally valuable. And in fact, what we see in all scripture is that women are uniquely honored compared to the societies of their time. Think of Genesis 1, verses 2 and 7, where it says man was created in the image of God, male and female, unheard of in that time. Exodus 20, where it says, honor your father and your mother, unheard of in that time. Honor your father. Think of the household colds, where again, Paul says, honor your father and your mother. You think about what we read in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, not only does the, author- the husband have authority over his wife's body, everyone said, uh-huh, but the wife has authority over her husband's body. And everyone said, what is going on here? And when the church and the family follow God's pattern, women should be honored and cared for today, too. There's a book called The Toxic War on Masculinity by Nancy Piercy. She's a fairly well-known Christian apologist. It's worth reading. I'm, I'm working through it now. And she tries to, to bust some of the myths without, without downplaying the, the, the abuses in the church. She says that when you look at the data that evangelical men who are active in the church, not just saying that they follow Jesus, but who are actively committed to the church, make the best husbands and the best fathers. And that is clear from a Catholic who is uh, running multiple uh, well-accepted studies at, at a secular university. See, when we follow God's plan, women should be honored because they're equal. Now, your bodies, although they are good, we need to understand that they are complicated by your sinful nature. There are those layers. And this is where, let's just, let's just acknowledge, our bodies can be wonderfully frustrating at times. Like I said, our kids love talking about gas. Um, right? Because there's, there's a frustration there. It's the same thing for reproductive systems, especially for young boys and girls growing into young men and women as you're figuring out your bodies, right? There's, there's that addition of the sinful layer, layer nature that adds layers. And, uh, but even though that is the case and it can hijack your body and, and your body is good. God has made you good. And as God's just going down and talking about how things work here, it says it's, it shows it's good. And so let's just say, uh, girls and, and women, God has made your body to be good. Your, your cycle is not an evil thing. Now, obviously, I've never experienced one. I had three younger sisters. Uh, I have my bride, been married 16 years, so I have sympathy, not empathy. I, I understand this is, this is hard, but it's, it's not an evil thing. It, it shouldn't be a shameful thing. It's the way God has made you. And as you go through it, and it, it might be difficult, you can tell yourself, this is the way that God has made me to prepare me to bear life. 
And that is beautiful. We don't want to suppress or disrupt a a, a woman's reproductive health as women's health tries to do that today. It's really the opposite. And there certainly should be a place to talk about what it looks like as as a follower of Christ, to follow Jesus, when you're feeling that way. Right now, there's that propriety. Probably don't want to post it on Facebook. But uh, I, I came across this book, I Want to Punch You in the Face, But I Love Jesus, The Ultimate PMS Companion. Um, haven't read it, so I can't recommend it. It's by a Christian who's a comedian. But someone who's talking about this is this is what God's made it. It's, it's, it's a good thing. Our bodies are good. Uh, boys and men, God has made you to be sexual beings. He's given you strong sexual drives. That can seem overpowering at times. Um, a society usually gets this wrong in two ways. In the past, it was, well, boys will be boys, and just whatever they do, go. Or today, it's more likely you're toxic. Uh, you need to find a way to hack that part of you off and subdue that. Instead, God says, this is good. He calls you to channel your drives and passions to be honed and matured and to grow into a man where you can honorably pursue and, and woo a woman and serve Jesus by joining with her in marriage. Right? Now, some, some men and women got a call to singleness, but for everyone else, the call is marriage and children. And, and that is why you have a reproductive system. And this is good. God made you this way. Now, it should go without saying then that men and women's bodies are different. Right? They are different, but meant to complete each other. One apologist put it helpfully this way. You, you see the, the one half and the other half showing the different sides. Everyone has a complete circulatory system. You all have a complete nervous system. You only have half of a reproductive system. God made you so that you need someone else to come in the other sex to join and create a child. Remember how this text works its way to the very middle in verse 18. And that's because God intended sexual intimacy to be in the fruitful bonds of marriage. Now, now you might be asking, okay, but what about all this uncleanness? You say this is a good thing, but doesn't the uncleanness kind of give a negative connotation? Well, certainly, doesn't this mean that sex is dirty and bad? Certainly at times in history, the church has had a negative view of sex or simply kept a hushed silence. So so what do you make of this passage or the one we read in Revelation 14 where the people of God are are male virgins? Well, it leads us to our our next point that sexual intimacy is beautiful but a temporary picture of Jesus' love. Right now, you see in this passage, generally the goal is sexual intimacy. That's what was presented as normal in the Old Testament. Right, that's why it's right in the middle of the chapter outline. This is, this is God's design from the very beginning. He says it's not good for man to be alone. And he created Eve to be with Adam. And he brought them together and, and the marriage covenant was sealed with sexual intimacy. And so it's clear from scripture that the, the Bible has an overwhelmingly positive view of sexual intimacy and marriage as a beautiful thing. Go to Proverbs 5, Song of Solomon. Right? The Apostle Paul says, takes us even further And John as well. They say that the husband's desire for his wife, and we could certainly say the wife for the husband as well, but here the desire for his wife is a picture of Jesus' desire for the church. Right? Men and women are are, are both sexual beings, but often there's an asymmetrical desire. Sometimes there's people who are a little different, but um, women, I acknowledge that you're you're sexual and and you're emotionally, physically attracted to men, but let's be honest. uh, Women are more beautiful than men. I think we can all agree on that. And there's a reason why the bride walks down the aisle to the groom in the wedding, and she's the one 
that's dressed up. We all know who is who. There's, there's no, you know, and, and men are normally strongly attracted to women. And in a God-fearing society, that, will des- that, that desire will help a boy to become a man so that he can be worthy of his bride. He will sacrifice time, energy, sometimes literal blood, sweat, and tears. In my own, in my own case, when I met Elizabeth before I was going off to war the first time, I knew we were going to be married. I was wise enough not to tell her that, but I thought, I thought this is where we were going. So I went for a deployment, and then I came back, and as I was getting closer to proposing, and I saw seminary on, on the horizon, I realized I don't have a way to support my bride and go to seminary easily at the same time. And so I went back to a combat zone for 15 months so that I could get married and care for my wife. Right? There's that pursuing aspect Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in all splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you see the desire that Jesus has for the church? And and then he goes on to say, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are all members of one body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Certainly a metaphorical, but also a physical expression. By the way, you see how this passage, by definition, excludes marriage to that of a man and a woman. And what Paul is saying here is is take the picture of a husband's strongest desire for his wife. And you haven't even scratched the surface of Jesus' love for his church. After all, he, he died for her and faced the wrath of God on the cross for your sins. Sometimes you might be thinking, Pastor, just please, please stop. Stop. Right? This is what Paul's saying. And, and we could read the Apostle John as well. In Revelation where he, 21, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Right? The, the marriage of a man and a woman capped by sexual intimacy does stand for the love of Jesus and his church. So that's the one part of the tension. But on the other hand, sexual intimacy is temporary and limited. And I think this does get back. There's a tension in the uncleanness. Now, you must be clear that ceremonially unclean to be that does not mean to be morally sinful. Last week's sermon, we talked about that, and, and the priest did not say when they offered their sacrifices, the priest will make atonement and they will be forgiven. It's that they will be made clean. But what it does do within putting sexual expression in the Old Testament in the boundaries of uncleanness is that it gives it certain limits. Right? In Old Testament times, at least one time, week of a woman's cycle was off limits for the husband and wife, and there were clear commandments to make sure the couple was extremely careful. What is more, be, being unclean disqualified you from worship. Do you remember in Exodus 19, Mount Sinai, Moses said to the people to go meet the Lord, be ready for the third day, and do not go near a woman. The NIV spells this out a little more clearly. Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. What God is saying here is that there is a limit to sexual expression in marriage. And worship is not the time for it. 
And at the very least, there were other cultures at the time that included sexual expressions in their worship. The ecstasy of sex was part of the worship ceremony. You might actually remember the cult prostitutes that were back there or, or in Corinth, Corinth that's a couple hundred years later. But there were temple prostitutes. If any of you have ever read the Da Vinci Code, I wouldn't recommend it. You don't have to fear it. Um, it's a book with a lot of anti-truths and subtle lies. But there is a pagan worship scene off in this secluded chamber where there are two people having sexual intercourse and there are a group of worshipers around them witnessing it. And it was promoted in the book as beautiful, open-minded, unbridled worship to the divine goddess. But God the Creator says, no, sex is good and beautiful in marriage, but it has its limit. Certainly not in public and definitely not when you worship me. So this is why scripture will sometimes refer to Christians symbolically as virgins, right? Revelation 14, four, it says it's talking about the people that are following Jesus. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who have followed the lamb wherever he goes. Now, Christians have gone all kinds of places with that 144,000. I'm convinced that the best explanation for the 144,000 virgins is the church gathered for Christ. This is not talking about a small selection of male super saints. Right, it's symbolic. Twelve times twelve times a thousand, and and virgins not defiled by women is a symbolic way of saying that they are wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. This is actually similar, perhaps, to what we read in Exodus about approaching God. In fact, one commentator says Sinai was like a bride, forbidden to anyone else. Abstinence was the spiritual preparation for one coming into the presence of the Holy One. So this too puts limits on sexuality. It is physical. And passing, it looks forward to the spiritual relationship with Jesus and his church, which is far greater. And so then the application here is that sexual intimacy is beautiful, but it is not what ultimately fulfills you. Right. If the church has maintained an awkward silence in this area, our society now worships sex instead of God. Reminds me again of Proverbs 913. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town. Calling to all who pass by, who are going straight their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there. Her guests are in the depth of Sheol or the grave. Right? So God, God made sex good. In its right context, it's beautiful and looks to Jesus' love. But it is not what defines you. Right? And this is why Paul can hold up singleness as an honorable pursuit. So we read in 1 Corinthians 7. He doesn't say, if you're single, you're missing out on the thing that makes you the most fulfilled. He says, if God calls you to singleness, you have the privilege of being devoted to him and serving him in a way that a married couple can't. So scripture shows that sex is beautiful but limited. And that moves us to our last point. This frames the way that you act and live with your body. So glorify God with your body. Now, we've seen before that these ceremonial laws, the food, the skin, the clothing, the house, the sex, all of them say that God cares about the details of your life. And as I was reading chapter 15, that's a long chapter. There's a lot of detail in there, isn't it? Saying God is concerned about every intimate part of your life. Now, these have been fulfilled in Christ. But the fact still remains that God desires you to glorify him with your body. And that includes Sexually. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you have received from us how you ought to live and to please God just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. 
For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Each one knows how to control their own body in holiness and honor. Now, this rules out from the start many of the things society today calls good. Sex outside of marriage, right? This one's so common, we, people don't even think about it anymore. Anything goes. If I love someone, well, why can't I be with them? Well, God says, no, covenant, sex is a covenant expression of married love. And, and if you truly love them, then prove it by committing yourself to them for life. Homosexuality. Today, our society thinks people of not those who should come together to produce children, but inherently sterile. And sexless or genderless, they might say. So why not? If, if someone loves each other, why can't a man live with a man? And, and in fact, people who support the homosexual lifestyle will even say to Christians, what's the big deal? The Bible hardly even talks about homosexual behavior. Well, the passages from Genesis 1 and to a lesser extent, Leviticus 15 or, or Ephesians 5, rule it out from the beginning. These are sterile relationships. And instead of bringing a man and woman together, it warps God's design for completion. And then there's pornography. Probably one of the most pervasive problems in our society. I've recently quoted, I can't remember, it's at the pulpit or Sunday school, a stat that the average age that the American child will see their first piece of pornography is at the age of nine. It is everywhere. And you can get hooked on it in seconds, and it's anywhere in your devices, easily accessible. And once again, this... This twists God's design. It offers cheap and fake sex at no cost. It produces no children, and it will suck your soul. I'll say to everyone, but especially young people, pornography is deadly serious, and the world says it's okay. If you've fallen into this trap and you're filled with shame, you will not get out by yourself. You, you need to confess this sin with someone you trust and seek accountability. Now, the world would say, Paul... Be, unre- be reasonable. Sex is everywhere today. And Paul would say, it was, was my time too. You might say, I can't, I'm stuck. I've been told I'm this way. The world would certainly say to Jesus, who are you to tell me what to do? Who are you to tell me what I'm to do with my body? You're robbing me of my joy and fulfillment in life. And Jesus says, I created you. And so I know what is best for you, what will truly fulfill you. And I've died for you. And I, I gave up, I, I, gave, I will give you everything. In fact, I lived as a pure and chaste single person. If you give up your body, your identity, your self-choice, then I will give you what you truly desire, the living water that is me. And that's the gospel, right? that, that you in Christ, if you, if you submit to him, you are a new creation. You can change. There is hope and mercy and forgiveness at the cross. The next sermon in the evening will be on the Day of Atonement, how Jesus has covered all of your sins and impurities. Now, knowing how, how prevalent this is out there, you should, you should have compassion and empathy, empathy mixed with godly encouragement. So, if you're someone from an older generation, and maybe you say, well, I never struggled with this, realize that each one of us is a sinner needing forgiveness. You know, if you're an older woman and a younger woman comes to you and says, I am, I am just stuck in pornography, take her to the cross Okay, how, how can we help you? How, how can we work out repentance and accountability and seek the Holy Spirit and his power? Right? There, there, is a, there is forgiveness and cleansing. Now, young people, I, I'll say, I know this is incredibly difficult to abstain from, as the Apostle says, sexual lust, to avoid looking at pornography as your friends are passing it around on the phone in high school or college. It's not easy. 
But following Jesus never is. He calls you to take up your cross and to follow him, and he gives you his spirit. And, and whether that's refusing to, to follow a certain sexual attraction or, or an orientation that God says is off limits, or, or being faithful to your husband and wife, or living a sexually pure life outside of marriage, glorify God with your body. When you surrender to Jesus, every part of you belongs to him. Just as the Old Testament laws have told us that God is concerned with every detail of your life and it sets you apart from the world. And so here you set yourself apart for Jesus as you honor him with your body, all the while waiting for his return. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Please pray with me. Father, thank you that you have made us and you have made us good. And where we are twisted by the fall in our own sinful nature, you have redeemed us in Christ. And we of all people in a world that is crying for intimacy and and meaning and answers should be able to to speak out the good news of Jesus, what it means to be whole and restored in him. And so would that start here at Faith Church and the way that we live our own lives, the way that we we restore and pray for others, that Jesus would indeed be glorified by our bodies. We pray this in his name. Amen. At this time, please.